Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, we start with the looming rate hike announcement from the Bank of Canada. Now, this is scheduled for tomorrow morning. All eyes on Tiff Macklem, the governor of the Bank of Canada, early tomorrow will make this decision. Will interest rates rise again? I'm betting no, but it's interesting to see a premier's coming out now, putting some pressure here on the governor of the Bank of Canada. I got Adil Danani standing by to discuss. First, let's listen to BC Premier David Eby here telling the Bank of Canada, don't do it again, don't raise interest rates again. Here's what he had to say. I'm hearing from British Columbians every day that are being crushed by the costs of daily life. And uh, one of those big impacts that they're seeing is ever-escalating interest rates. BC Premier David Eby, he's written a letter to the Governor of the Bank of Canada asking for a pause and any more interest rate hikes. Interestingly now, Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, has just released a similar letter. Uh, saying, please don't do it. Don't raise interest rates again tomorrow morning. Let's discuss now with my guest, Adil Denani, Denani Group of Real Estate Advisors. Very pleased to welcome him back. Adil, thank you for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Thanks so much for having me on again. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate it. So everyone waiting for this announcement tomorrow morning, what are you anticipating? What are you looking for? Everyone is on the edge of their seat, uh, waiting to see what direction the bank goes in tomorrow. I I mean, I think the reality is, Mike, we've seen, um, you know, we're at the highest uh, rates we've seen in three decades, right? So consumers, um, local um, Canadians in general are now really starting to see the impact. Ten rate hikes in the past 18 months, two in the recent 90 days. And I think now we're truly starting to see the impact it's having on on regular, everyday um, British Columbians and Canadians. you know, we've um, we've had interesting evolution of conversations with our clients in the last six months. I think earlier this year, uh, we were getting calls from clients that seemed, you know, a bit stressed about the higher rates. But now these clients are more distressed, uh, fearing these higher payments and not having the certainty around making those payments. And I think if you put it into context, if you are a homeowner in the last three years or four years, you have bought a secondary property, like an investment property, which is very commonplace. Um, that might have been neutral. You know, the rent was just covering the mortgage. In the last 18 months, you could now be in a shortfall of thousands of dollars per month. And those mortgages can no longer be carried. So, you know, how does a homeowner or, you know, a mom and pop investor cover that $1,500 a month or $2,000 a month shortfall? That's after-tax income. We know the rents haven't gone up aligned um, with those mortgage payments uh, um, at least it's very difficult for tenant-occupied homes to go up at that rate. Um, right. So I think I think the concern going forward is, um, you know, will the bank move forward on more rate hikes? If so, I think, um, you know, I think we could see some cracks in the system. Have any of okay? It's really interesting, Adil. When you speak to your clients and the people you advise, have, have anyone that you said people are getting worried? Has anyone actually bailed out? Like decided, look, I got to sell this place. I I'm worried about these rate hikes. Uh, oh, definitely, Mike. We've had a handful of clients who have uh, decided to put their investment property up for sale. Um, most yeah. have successfully sold, fortunately. Um, I think we're still early in this conversation, right? We haven't seen a flood of inventory. Inventory has still remained generally quite tight. 
Um, while transaction volumes are down uh, almost to 2008 levels, um, um, uh, listings are also down considerably. Um, so I think it's had more of a balancing effect on the market. Um, you know, we're, we're at an interesting uh, precipice, really. If the bank continues to hike, um, we're going to see cracks in the system and we're probably going to see, we could see this become more of a systemic issue. Speaking to Adil Danani, Danani Group of Real Estate Advisors, will there be another interest rate hike from the Bank of Canada? That announcement scheduled for tomorrow morning. You, you touched briefly on, on renters out there. This affects renters too, right? Like if people have an, their mortgage payments go up, if they're a landlord, they're looking to hike rents. And we've already seen rents go sky high here in British Columbia. Could another rate hike put even more upward pressure on rents too? Yeah, great point. I, so if a tenant is in a, let's, let's look at a real life example. If a tenant is in a month to month situation, the landlord can only increase their rent nominally every year, right? Based on the British right. Columbia Residential Tenancy Act. And if they know they can increase their rent and that seller can no longer afford to make those, those, the higher mortgage payments, what's that seller likely going to do? They're going to hit the sell button. And what happens if it's an end user, then you're going to have a displaced a tenant, right? Because the end user is going to move in, the tenant's going to have to find a new place at the higher um, uh, mortgage. I mean, at the higher uh, rental rates that we're right. all experiencing today. So, I think there could be this domino effect. Um, I think right now markets remain quite tight. We haven't seen a flood of inventory. The fall is an interesting time, right? Because a lot of decisions go on pause over the summer, um, and uh, as people get back into routine um, and into you know regular. Um, a regular life, I think we could start seeing more inventory come on in the fall. I think that's something we're closely watching in our practice is how many calls are we getting? How many more listings are we seeing? And is this going to have downward pressure on prices? Because if we start seeing more supply, um, you know, combined with higher interest rates, we're going to know tomorrow what direction they're going in. We could, we could be in for a very interesting fall. Speaking of supply, when you take a look at housing starts across the country, they're not keeping up with demand. I mean, it's not even close. If you take a look at the way our population has grown, compare that to the housing starts. Housing starts are very sluggish. We're not building enough new homes here for the people that want them and need them. How does interest another interest rate hike affect home starts, too? Because this really affects people who are developers and builders out there when the rate hikes go higher it's more expensive to build properties correct absolutely absolutely i think the most significant impact on a developer's performa has been the interest rate line item and as interest rates go up right the commercial lending rate so if a builder is going to go and borrow money in today's environment it's usually at prime plus three or up to prime plus four even so you're looking at double digit interest rates 10 to 11 percent Imagine what that's doing to projects that were just barely economic, and now you add in the you know the component of higher rates. Those projects are all going on pause, or if they come to market, um, they're going to be you know likely at a break even. So I think there's less incentive for developers to bring on more inventory, which further exacerbates the issue we're having right now of, of limited uh, supply and, and and being in this housing housing crisis we're in. I mean, I think it was really interesting that you know EB David EB came out. We know the Bank of Canada is apolitical, right? Um, you know, but you can't help but think that they're listening and taking into consideration all options and what the broader impact on the economy would be as a result of either, you know, tomorrow's standing pat, not, not changing rates, or moving forward with one more rate hike. Um, you, I think one more rate think, hike is in the cards likely for you, the year, whether that's this month or, or, or at some point later this year. Oh, so you, you think another rate hike is coming at some point? 
I think so. Um, yeah. um, uh, I do believe, though, 12 months from now, rates will be lower than where they are today. Mm-hmm. Um, the big six, there was a survey released about two weeks ago. The big six banks, um, on average, are expecting 12 months from now to rates be on average 1% lower than where they are today. So, sure. you know, if that huh. comes to fruition, we could see some relief. But we're talking about what's happening in the next three, six, nine months. Do you? Do you think David Eby did the right thing speaking out here when he wrote this letter to the Bank of Canada saying, please don't do it again? You know, I've heard there's been some criticism of this for politicizing this process here. It's, you know, now you've got Doug Ford, the Ontario Premier, doing the same thing. Are are they right Right. to do that? You think they should do that? I mean, I think it's great from an optics perspective for, Mm -hmm. um, for, for, for Premier Eby. Um, Look, I think taking a humanized approach to this is important. Um, I think the Bank of Canada is very linear in their mandates, right? We want to keep inflation between 2 and 3%. Um, I also think they're very intelligent. And I also think they have access to much more data than any other organization. So they know the true impact it's having on Canadians, um, yeah. you know, regular Canadians who are, um, you know, on, on the brink of, of either managing this new debt or the higher rates or, or perhaps not. So I think they will make a prudent decision, hopefully, uh, in September, we know what the market generally does when we get a, you know, when the Bank of Canada will raise their flag saying, you know, rate hikes are done. We saw it in earlier. We saw it earlier this year. The market really started picking up steam again, right? We don't want yeah. that. We just want stability. I think that would be healthy for the uh, for the remainder of the year. Okay, Adil, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, here we go with the battle for the youth vote in Canada. And this is really, really interesting, and it's really heating up as well. If you take a look at some of the recent opinion polling here, Justin Trudeau and the federal liberals appear to be losing support among younger voters, according to some of these recent surveys. Pierre Polyev and the conservatives may be picking up some of that younger demographic support. What a great panel we've got standing by here for you, both sides of it. First, let's have a listen to Trudeau here first. Here's Justin Trudeau. He knows he's in trouble here. Here he is with his message to young voters. To young Canadians, I want to say something. Hey, Tim. You've had two crucial years of adulthood dramatically interrupted by COVID, and then you were hit by global inflation and increased interest rates. These events upended your educations, your first jobs, your early years of building a career and a network. Okay, that's the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau with his message to millennials here. Pierre Polyev, the Conservative leader, here's his pitch to young voters. Have a listen to this. For young people and the working class, the housing market after eight years of Justin Trudeau is a prison. It's a prison of walls for 350 square foot apartments that cost $2,000 a month or parents' basements where young adults of 35 years old live, never having a chance to start a family with their biological clocks running out. All right, so there you go. It's both sides of it, and we have both sides of it here for you right now. Very pleased to welcome Joshua Hart. Joshua is the president of the Conservative Club at UBC. Joshua, thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate it. Liam Olson is also on the line. Liam is the president of the Young Liberals of Canada. Liam, thank you for coming on. Thanks for inviting me, Mike. 
Okay, guys, I appreciate both of you doing this. Liam, let me go to you first here. When you take a look at these opinion polls here, and it appears there's been a number of polls come out that sort of indicate this trend. What are your feelings on this? Like, is is the are the liberals kind of losing their edge with young voters? What do you see from your perspective with the young liberals? Yeah, thanks, Mike. What I what I see, and I've been in this position now since May. What I see is uh, seven new campus clubs and clubs, riding clubs across the country that we've founded. Uh, 700, 700 young people at our convention. A quarter of people at our national convention in May were under the age of twenty five. Uh, the Conservative Convention, I know, is, is later this week. Uh, I think a lot of people will have their eyes out to see if they get that number of young people at their convention. So, uh, frankly, this whole idea that the party has somehow lost touch or collapsed or lost interest with young Canadians, I don't see in the work that I'm doing on the ground. We're a tenacious bunch. We're enthusiastic. We're signing up people every day in, in a rate we haven't seen in years. And uh, that's because I think our message is still resonating. Okay, let's see what Joshua says to that. Joshua's with the UBC Conservative Club. Joshua, go ahead. Well, I just think we have a government that is almost out of touch with young people. You know, I talk to people almost every day who, you know, never thought of voting Conservative in the past, but just due to economic issues, you know, rent is so high, inflation is crippling them, they can't afford school. So they're saying, you know, what's, what the government's doing right now is not working and we need an alternative. And, you know, I think Pierre's you know, he's out there, he's talking with young people, he's listening to the concerns of, you know, people like myself, university students, and it's an appealing message. So there's definitely, there's a growing movement, and we're, we're seeing a lot more young people come into the fold who, you know, in the past just had not considered voting conservative at all. Okay, Liam, what about this price of housing? I mean, this is the, the one issue that seems to come up every single time when we talk about this younger demographic. The price of housing, especially in Metro Vancouver, young people just priced out of this market, what do you say to that? Because it seems to me the government seems to be vulnerable on that. But your thoughts? Oh, for sure. Look, thing, things are expensive right now. I don't think you're going to yeah. find anyone in the country who doesn't recognize that that's a problem. Um, and I think I think for our part, the, the Liberals have been pretty clear that uh, this is an issue we've chipped away at over the years. We've got this the government back into the housing game after decades of being out of building any public housing. Uh, this government started uh, building housing again. That's not a process that that that's not an impact that gets felt right away. Uh, but yeah. between that, between the can of first timer, uh, first time home home buyers incentive, where up to 10 percent of a home's purchase price goes towards a down payment. Uh, if you think back to some of our first policies coming into office, raising taxes on the top one percent, lowering them for the middle class, those working hard to join it, including millions of young Canadians. These are things that do make a real impact in people's lives, especially young people. But there's a lot more to do, and there's a lot more time for bold policy. And I think you're 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 seeing that now from the housing minister. Uh, but uh, but definitely, I don't think you'll find anyone who doesn't admit that there's more to do for sure. Jo- Joshua, what do you say to that? Well, I I think in the end of the day, this government has not had a successful housing policy. You know, in the last eight years, housing prices have skyrocketed. And you know, in the end of the day, since 2018, our actual GDP per capita has declined. Like. The middle class is not as wealthy as it used to be. Things are not going well, and more and more Canadians are just being pushed out of the housing market. Like I, you know, personally, I'm a young guy, I live in Vancouver. It's worrying for me. I don't know how I'll be able to afford my first house here. And, you know, this policy is just, of the government is just exacerbating the problem. And, you know, the government needs to do more. And the, the Liberals, 
are happy to say, okay, you know, we've done, you know, X, Y, and Z. Well, the proof is in the pudding. Housing prices are continuing to skyrocket. So we need to take yeah. bold action. And I think, you know, the Conservatives are actually proposing things, you know, more transit-oriented development, you know, forcing municipalities to build, build, build. And we just don't see that from this government. What, what would, okay, on Polyev's agenda here, though, Josh, when it comes to build, 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 and more housing, like I understand that, let's build more stuff that, to match this, the demand out there. Where is the assurance that the, this will be affordable housing? Like, if you build more stuff, won't you just build more stuff that's just as expensive as everything else? I think that's a great question, and obviously it's a consideration. You know, I'm, I'm not an economics major, but I look at supply and demand. If we increase the supply of housing, it'll alleviate demand, and in the long run, you know, it'll become more affordable. In the end of the day, not all housing that's going to be built is going to be affordable to a, a vast majority of the population. I, you know, I understand that, and there's, it's definitely a real concern. But I think, you know, if it's an option between building, you know, towers that are maybe affordable to, you know, 40% of the population instead of building nothing, I'd rather build than not build. Okay, Liam, what do you say to that? Build, build, build. That's the message from Polyev. Yeah, I got to respectfully disagree with my friend here because I think what, what he is saying is what we're doing, right? Look, two mm. weeks ago, on August 18th, Minister Fraser sent a, a letter to the city of, of London, Ontario. And the city of London, Ontario, just so folks know, uh, they've applied for money under the Housing Accelerator Fund. And that's a fund that is used to build more affordable housing and infrastructure that supports housing. And what Minister Fraser said was, uh, you know, make sure that as a municipality, you're doing everything possible to address the housing crisis. And that includes uh, permitting fourplexes. Uh, so increasing density in line with building more houses, as well as the support we are providing through things like the Housing Accelerator Fund to build affordable housing and infrastructure. So, so again, you know, respectfully, I think that the Conservatives have found uh, a message which sounds really good. But the reality is we're doing it. And sometimes, especially in a global crisis, I'm just going to emphasize this point really quickly. Yeah. Google Housing Crisis Australia, Google Housing Crisis UK, US, New Zealand, you name it. This is a global issue. It's not like this is a Canada-only thing. Systems have been stressed mm. out because of COVID and, and decades of, of, of other issues. So these are things that take a little bit of time to correct. But we are doing uh, what we have to do. Okay, Joshua, quick response from you on that. Liam says like, this is happening everywhere, so you can't blame Trudeau for what's happening. It's happening everywhere. Your thoughts? I think that's just an easy excuse in the end of the day. You know, obviously COVID was a major impact. And it, you know, it, it impacted the housing market in ways that we're just starting to grapple with. But to say, okay, well, you know, it was, it was issues out of our control, so, you know, it's not really our problem. It, it's, to me, it's a weak approach. We need to say, okay, look, here's a problem. We recognize it's worldwide but we need to take bold action and we need to be a world leader because, you know, there are nations that have addressed it. For example, like with COVID and inflation, you look at somewhere like France, they had one of the lowest inflation rates in the world. So, you know, there are policies from around the world we can look to and say, okay, let's implement this. Let's, you know, get action. Let's build the housing. Let's make housing affordable again. You know, it's not going to happen overnight, okay. but we need to take action. Okay. It's our young voters debate. Joshua Hart from the conservative club at UBC. Liam Olson. Liam is the president of the Young Liberals of Canada. Your calls on the open line 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Brent in South Surrey. Hi, Brent. Go ahead. Oh, good morning, uh, Mike and panel. Uh, I just wanted to say that people can't afford houses. Uh, there's, there's no, I mean, we've had eight years of the liberal, uh, government. 
Uh, House prices are expensive, yes, but the Liberal government taxes and taxes and spends, and then they give us a little bit of money back through maybe a food bonus or something. They're keeping Canadians tour. The GS, or they're poor, rather. I, I mean, they're, they're, they're the GST, they haven't cut, you know, I mean, uh, carbon taxes. They tax and tax and tax. And now there's yeah. 120 CRA individuals charged with taking the CERB, and they were spending money like drunken sailors creating inflation. So there is a lot of bad, bad leadership okay. in the Liberal government. We need a change. Let's go to Liam on that. Liam from the Young young Liberals of Canada. This is a frequent attack point against the government, Liam, overspending, overtaxing. Pierre Polyev has promised to cut spending, cut taxes. How do you respond to that? Yeah, uh, I, I hear it a lot too. But again, like, look at what we've actually done, right? Uh, raising taxes in the top 1%. And lowering them for everyone else—that's one of the first things we did coming into office. Uh, we we have we're a government that lowers taxes and makes life more affordable. Uh, if you want to talk about about how we're managing the economy, we have the lowest debt to GDP ratio in the G7. Uh, so so you know I I again I, I don't want to sound unsympathetic. I I'm a young person. I see it when I go to the grocery store. I see it when I pay my rent. Things are expensive right now. I don't think anyone should deny that. What I'm saying is anyone who promises you that these problems can be can be fixed by, oh, a tax cut here or a, or a little thing there, or I'm just going to somehow magically appear a million homes like that is not that is not a genuine, honest response of how to tackle problems. Joshua. Well, I think when this government created almost half a trillion dollars of new debt over the last four years, you know, obviously COVID. Extreme circumstances, you know, measures needed to be taken, but we, we've created a lot of new money, and that is a huge inflationary pressure on the economy. So what we need is we need a government that brings back, you know, fiscal responsibility and actually says, okay, you know, we're going to work to reduce the deficit. And in, in the long run, that'll benefit us greatly. It'll, it'll reduce inflation, and it'll reduce those pressures on Canadians. Where would you, you know, cut? Like, what, when you take a look at the budget, what programs would you cut in Canada? Gosh. Well, I think we need to find, obviously, efficiencies in programs, you know, things like health care, education. The Conservatives don't want to cut those. We understand we need those essential programs. But, you know, in the end of the day, we have a lot of programs throughout government that are just inefficient. They're not well managed, you know, and I think uh, a review of all government spending is in, in order. And, you know, I look at things like you know, Department of International Aid, we send out a lot for aid and aid is important. But when Canadians hear, you know, food bank usage is up a third, should we be sending out as much aid? You know, small savings there. It will help greatly for Canadians who are struggling. Doug in Surrey on the open line. Hi, Doug. Go ahead. Good morning, Mike. Nine and a half years of Stephen Harper cured me forever. Of Well, I never voted for a conservative anyway, but uh, nine and a half years of him. Uh, he was told by the backroom power boys to put him in power to uh, read the script, and you better read it right or you're gone. And uh, Pierre Polyev's getting the same, uh, you know, prods from the backroom. Soften your image, say what you're so, uh, supposed to say, and hope that the suckers out there that vote uh, will be stupid enough to vote you in. Why do you think they'd be stupid to vote him in? Simple. He's, he's uh, merely the figurehead that the public sees, the big money that uh, runs the Conservative Party, they'll tell mm. him what to do, and if he doesn't do it right, he knows he's gone. Okay, Joshua, what do you say to that? Well, I, I have to disagree. I think, you know, Stephen Harper was a very good Prime Minister, and he looked out for all Canadians. You know, you look from fiscal management to our image on the world stage, Canada was respected, and it was a country that was doing well. 
And by the time Stephen Harper left in 2015, our middle class was doing better than the American middle class. Today, Canada's middle class is doing significantly worse than the U.S. So the proof's in the pudding. And this Liberal government has just not uh, been up to the task of governing. Liam Olson, your thoughts on that? Let's look at the Conservatives' proposals for the economy. Bitcoin, you can buy out of inflation. <laughs> Let's not forget he said that last year, right? That was, that yeah. was the way to get out of inflation was Bitcoin. Fire yeah. the governor of the Bank of Canada, because that'll, that'll get monetary policy under control. Uh, uh, look, the fact is, I don't know a single one of Pierre Polyev's economic proposals, because he hasn't told us. Uh, so, so, you know, I, I, I agree with, uh, with the listener who called in there that, uh, again, it's, it's the classic thing. It's, it's a lot of good sound bites, but if you actually dig into what they're proposing, this is not going to help the problem. It's okay. going to make it a lot worse. Squeeze in one more call. Rick and Burnaby. Rick, you got like 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Okay. I'll just first say, uh, from the liberal side that the, uh, 1% reduction, I haven't seen all these polls, uh, that have made any change in my life. I feel poor for the day, every day. Um, and as far as the international aid, I agree. I kind of asked Mike, what happened to Canada first? We help our neighbors, we mm. help other countries, but let's make sure Canada first. I mean, okay. our immigration wants to come in high. Why don't we reduce that till we have people that can afford housing in Canada already? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rick, for the call. Okay, guys, we have exactly one minute left here, so let's split it evenly here. you got 30 seconds each to sum up. Joshua Hart, you go first. Well, just as a closing message, I'd like to say, you know, more and more Canadians feel like this country is broken from health care to the economy to immigration. Every topic that this federal government seems to touch, things feel broken. And, you know, Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives were proposing actual solutions. You know, we want to get back to the basics. We want to bring it home, eliminate regulation, get the economy unlocked, start building okay. houses again, get Canada back on track. Thank you, Joshua. Liam Olson, you got 30 seconds, too. Go ahead. Yeah, Canada doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? Part of that international aid is, is ensuring that we're actually uh, eradicating COVID in other parts of the world so future variants don't come and bother us here and shut down our economy again. Uh, things like global climate change. These are global phenomenon where we have a, an obligation for our own sakes in Canada to okay. ensure that we're not hit. So, so again, I, 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 I hear it, but the reality is we live in a global world and, and that means being a global partner. All right. Let's talk about the situation now at the Burning Man Festival in the Nevada desert. And if you've seen the photos of this here uh, the last few days and who hasn't, oh, my God, what a muddy mess down there we've seen over the last few days. Now, there was a freak rainstorm there. It only took a little bit of rain to turn the festival site into a total mud pit. We've got Justin Burnett standing by. He is a Burning Man veteran. He's been there several times. First, let's have a listen to this report here now. This is from NBC News. The chaos began Friday, an unusual summer storm turning the annual desert campout into a muddy mess. More than 70,000 trapped, some hiking miles to get out. The local sheriff probing the death of one person during the rain event. The cause still under investigation, but organizers say it was not storm-related. People need, are going to need to be patient. Following calls to shelter in place and conserve supplies, Burning Man CEO telling attendees who've been stranded for days to remain calm. We've made it really clear that we do not see this as an evacuation situation. 
It's a tradition going back nearly 40 years, the counterculture festival in the remote Nevada desert, celebrating art, music, and community. It's one for the ages, that's for sure. Okay, let's discuss it now with my guest, Justin Burnett. Justin has been to many Burning Man festivals over the years, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Justin, thank you for coming on today. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, Justin. Thank you very much for doing this. How many Burning Mans have you been to now? I've been to four um, of the actual event, well over 20 Burning Man sanctioned events with the regionals all around the world. Yeah, there's all these regional events that happen as well around this as well. And I know you did a little bit of, did you do some volunteer work or you worked there for at one of the festivals? Yeah. Right? Yeah, you know, it's um, so a lot of people like to think of Burning Man as like this place only accessible for rich, but they have a lot of of opportunities. Um, I was unemployed and it was going to be my third burn and I really wanted to go. So I volunteered and I worked at the gate. So I did the the gate and the exodus. Um, So basically getting all the cars in and out, I volunteered with all of that. And it is a lot. Yeah, so tell me about this now for people who have never been to this. And I'll tell you, here in mm-hmm. Vancouver and British Columbia, there's a lot of burners up here, too. There's a lot of people make that trek <laughs> down to the desert every <laughs> every single year. But for people who have never been there, Justin, like what is what is it like? Like, what is the appeal of it for you? So I think a lot of people are confused about Burning Man. They're like, why do people want to go out there? It's a harsh desert, crazy weather, insane things. Everything's so intense. Well, it's it's about that, right? It's about stepping out of your comfort zone. It's about pushing your boundaries and um, relying on yourself pushing yourself into a point where you have to, you know, push your boundaries of your whatever it may be. I mean, everyone has a very yeah. unique experience out there. Yeah. And when you take a look at what happened here, let's let's talk about the mud here, Justin, because, mm-hmm. you know, I was I was listening to one expert about why it, just a little bit of rain. Well, I guess there was a mm-hmm. lot of rain in a short period. But why can you describe like the surface of that that yeah. like, that lake bed there? Like, wh- why does it why did it turn to a mud pit like that so quickly? So, uh, Black Rock City is a very unique ecosystem in the world. There's I don't know if there's anywhere else really like it. Um, it has a pH balance well over nine, I think like nine point five. So I don't know what it is, but it's it's not actually dirt or dust. It's alkali. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's it looks like mud and you think but what you're actually you're like on ice it's, it's like ice mud uh, i don't know if you've seen any videos of people but they when they're walking they're real slow and waddling and people i'm sure slipping all over but yeah that it, it's not like dirt or mud or anything it's just like a really slippery cement <laughs> yeah yeah, because the at the best of times, and when you have the typical dry conditions, it, it looks like a kind of a very fine sort of powder almost surface. Oh, yeah, it's like talk. It's like baby powder. It's it's so yeah. soft. It's just it's 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 really unique dust. Like I, I think you know that's kind of one of the big things about Burning Man. I even have a little jar of the dust over there um, that I keep, <laughs> and it's kind of like the it's you know like we're all kind of um rebirthed in the dust because it's something you have to deal with their first time at burning man the first thing they do when it's your first time there they make you get out of your car as soon as you get there and do dust angels and if anyone's (laughs) like oh i don't want to get dirty we're like oh oh you're gonna get dirty (laughs) well they've gone from making dust angels to making mud angels there yes it looks looks on the weekend so what did you think about what we saw here on the weekend with people being told shelter in place there? It looks like it's dried up sufficiently now that people are getting out of there now. What's the latest? Yeah. Have you heard any updates? So, yeah, I've been talking with people that are there directly, um, which is why I've been able to give some news. Um, my friends who are there working as well, doing stuff who are on the comms. So I've been able to get, you know, some good unfiltered um, information because, you know, the media, they love to sensationalize these things. It's a, it's It's like... So easy for them to make it sound way worse than it is. But 
most people there have been in, in good spirits and yeah. making the best of it because that's kind of the point. You know, you go out there with with the intention to survive and in the harsh desert environment, um, your ticket says on the back to bring enough food, water and shelter or you could die. Um, right. It, it right. says that ver like very clearly in on the back of your ticket. Yeah. Speaking of Justin Burnett, Justin has been to four Burning Man festivals. He's worked at one of, one of the festivals, talking about the muddy conditions there uh, the last few days. So, you know, the, one of the interesting things, too, Justin, for your thoughts, is kind of the backlash that we've seen online to the festival as well. And I know that you have heard this, like people who would say, you know, I don't have any sympathy for people who are trapped in that mud this is some elitist gathering of rich, privileged mm -hmm. people. I know you've heard that. So let me let me give the listeners an example of this type of backlash that that the burners are facing here. So this is from from tick, tick, TikTok, and this is typical of the backlash here against Burning Man. Let's listen, and then I'll get your thoughts. So a bunch of rich white people went into the desert in the summer, built a mini town that's just going to be disassembled. Wow, there's a housing crisis and our country is seeing record numbers in terms of homelessness. And on top of that, during a climate crisis, there's trash and litter and they're burning things, releasing who knows into the air. Okay, Justin, I mean, we hear a lot mm -hmm. of this kind of backlash, right? What, what do you say yeah. to that? You know, I think it really comes down to a, a bit of ignorance because a lot of people get this notion of what it is and they don't really know the idea that it is mostly rich people out there like those that exists. That's not a stereotype. No. That's false. But most people that go to Burning Man, like I'm saying, probably over 70 percent of the people that are out there are just very ordinary people who work together with camps and groups year round to plan these events and to bring their camp up there. They save their money year round. I went twice while I was unemployed. I am not rich by any means, and I have been four times. It's accessible to people. And then as far as like the environmental impacts and stuff, if you really want to break it down and get into that, Burning Man organization, like they talk about the litter and stuff, there's going to be a team of at least 100 or so people that are going to stay there for however long it takes to restore the playa to the best condition possible. These are like... These are people who are volunteering. They are not paid. They go out there and walk arm in arm across the entire footprint of the event, like in a, in a complete picket line type deal, and walk over and sift through with their stuff and pick up every bit of trash they can find. And then they even mark where the trash is so that they can hold the camps accountable and punish them and not give them spots mm -hmm. next year if they don't take care of their trash. Um, there's a lot of elements that go into that. And as far as the carbon footprint and things like that, Burning Man organization throughout the year does a lot to um, give back to um, environmental activities, whatever it may be. I don't know the actuals of those. So I'm not going to speak to it, but I know they do participate yeah. in that as well as the locals around people like to get mad about the locals and thinking that the locals there depend on Burning Man. They spend a lot of their time waiting for that to come in through there. That's when all of they, they get their say, set up car washes for the thing. They, that's a huge economic driver for the local tribes. And on top of that, Burning Man Org also gives back a lot more to those tribes for the schools and the things areas around there, which is really more than any kind of, you know, festival similar to it has done anywhere. Um, it's, okay. it's not a profit. 
Okay, well, that's a pretty comprehensive d- defense of Burning Man for sure. What about the? Let's go back to the cost for a minute. Like when people say, like, mm-hmm. "Oh, this is just some event for rich, privileged people." And yeah. you said, you know, some people are rich. There are some some rich tech bros from Silicon Valley or whatever will will go to mm-hmm. this thing to party. They've even got like a pop up airport for people who are flying yep. in for for Burning Man. So you can't deny, it. yeah, there are some rich people yeah. there. Which but is controversial someone, among burners too. Is it okay? What what is the yeah. controversy there? Well, I mean, a lot of them want to be keep it more of like there, there's burners who don't want the rich people there as well. Um, yeah. You know, like there's there there's a lot of that element. They do just kind of come in and do that. But they also get messed with, too. Like uh, there's been years where they've cut their power to those like plug and play camps is what they call it, where the rich people will send people out to set up before them and they just show up and have all oh. their stuff. And so other burners that have been there are like, yeah, no, that's not how this works. So they've done things like gluing their doors shut so they can't get in their RVs. They've cut the power supplies to them so they were left without power just to, you know, just to kind of mess with them. Because the whole point of it is to follow the principles out there and to yeah. and it's an experiment in society. So when you do come out with all your like luxuries and things, you're you're you are deteriorating the the spirit of the event. Well, let's say you're not rich, okay? Let's like back when you were you went when you were unemployed, you mentioned like how much yeah. does it cost for someone? What's the minimum cost to go to this thing? Would you say? So, it's kind of like if there's a will, there's a way, right? Um it, it it's such a large spectrum. I mean, you could spend thousands and thousands of dollars having all these things and I, you could spend under $500. They have options for low income tickets that you can apply for. You get you can get that as well as they have like burner bus expresses express where you can take a bus from Reno up to the event. Um and so all these things you can go for under $1000. Okay. Um, which is like, you know, if, if it is something you really, really wanted to do in your life, um, and this is something you wanted to explore, it is accessible to anyone. If you start okay. messaging people, yeah, sorry. Okay, Justin, last question for you. Yeah. With the events that we've seen here with, with the mud now and, mm-hmm. and the problems that we've seen, was this a good thing or a bad thing for the festival now? Do you think this has any kind of long, long-lasting repercussions for Burning Man going forward? Or do you think this was a... Maybe, maybe you could argue that this show that the community did come together to get through it. Yeah, I mean, you you see a lot of the news and the sensationalizing where they're talking about this and they're like, oh, now there's a big traffic jam. That traffic jam happens every year when everyone leaves. It's 70,000 people onto one line ha- highway. It's never not there. Um, as far as the actual event and permitting goes, there has been a lot of controversy and difficulty, but I think a lot of that time is just the, the government's playing hardball to get more money from the event. Um, at the end of the day, this is a huge economic driver for Northern Nevada. There's a lot of people that rely on this event to happen every year, especially Reno. It's one of their biggest economic drivers in the city for the year. Um, and Burning Man Org does do a lot of the things. They work very closely with the natives um, on the land as well as BLM as much as they can. Uh, I don't think Burning Man's going to go anywhere. I think that they're going to work really hard to do that. They have contingency plans for every possible thing that could have happened and they were already prepared for this they had okay um yeah justin it was great to talk to you today thank you for coming absolutely for sure thank you All right, let's talk about the north vancouver driver now who ended up pleading guilty to providing false information after his high-tech tesla vehicle effectively testified against him. Now, this guy told police that his Tesla had been carjacked. The computer in his Tesla, though, told a very, very different story. Looks like the guy didn't know that the Tesla was recording his movements, knew where he had been, knew where he had gone. 
It, the story didn't add up. Got Paul Doroshenko standing by to discuss. Here's the question. With cars being so high-tech right now, bristling with computer software, is your car spying on you, watching what you do, recording your movements? Have a listen to this report from ABC News. Most newer vehicles have navigation and infotainment systems which know where you go, where you eat, what music you like, and who your contacts are. Vehicle computers can track your driving habits, like how fast you go and whether you wear a seatbelt. There's even an event data recorder, like a black box on an airplane. It's usually in the airbag system. Plus, there are cameras and not just outside the vehicle. Some companies like GM, Subaru, and now Volvo are putting cameras inside vehicles facing the driver to warn you if you get tired or distracted. They're collecting very sensitive information. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, traffic lawyer, Paul Doroshenko, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Paul, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Good morning. Okay, this is really interesting to me because we had talked about this on an earlier show about the computer software contained in these newer vehicles that can record a lot of information, including where you go, the speed at which you were driving. And in this particular case, Paul, I'm really interested in your thoughts on it. This guy ended up on the wrong side of the law here. So a North Vancouver man, Arya Farozadish, had told police that his Tesla had been carjacked, and police were able to take a look at the computer of the Tesla that told a very different story, that the car had not been stolen or carjacked, as he claimed. He ended up in a lot of trouble. What do you think about this case? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a, such a... Hard-to-believe lie, right? Uh, How often are there carjackings in the lower mainland? Um, And so, you know, he smashed, sounds like he smashed up his car and then concocted a lie in the hopes of, I don't know, keeping himself from being investigated. Uh, One wonders why people do these things, but it's, it's not uncommon, for example, for people to report their vehicle stolen. Uh, and then uh, ICBC begins to investigate, and they look at their at their phone calls that they made right around the time, and they find that the vehicle was you know traveling down the highway to to a, a gravel pit in Chilliwack with with the owner in the car phoning is uh, phoning somebody from their contact. So I mean, they can usually get this evidence if people concoct a, a ridiculous story. Um, or, you know, or making a false claim to uh, the police or ICBC, they're they're going to figure it out. Yeah, the the court in this case heard that the man had claimed that someone had stopped him and had had stolen his car, carjacked his Tesla. When police were able to examine the computer software in the vehicle, uh, they determined that the car had not been stopped at any point during during the journey, so the story did not add up at all. So he ended up pleading guilty in court, $5,750 fine, also charges for towing and storage of the vehicle. So this gets back into the whole question about, you know, your rights as, as a vehicle owner. Like, can police, is that now established in law, Paul, that police can examine the computer software? It's almost like well, these vehicles have got a black box in them, like an airplane that can record your movements, and police can look at that? Yeah, it's monitoring your movements, and, and there's always these people who will say, you know, if I'm not doing anything wrong, what's the big deal? But, you know, sometimes you can be, be not necessarily doing something exactly the way you're supposed to, or it can be, it can be 
uh, you know, viewed in a way that's not quite uh, quite fair. But yeah, your car uh, is monitoring you. I and mean, we've known about these event data recorders for a while, right? If your airbag goes off, your event data recorder in your vehicle is going to record, uh, keep track of what took place in the in the seconds before. So it'll know your speed and the position your brake was at, where your steering wheel was, and and that can be important evidence. Uh, yeah. to investigate a, an offense. But now, of course, or to investigate a collision, not necessarily even an offense. But now, of course, we've got uh, we've got Teslas that are recording all this information. And, and, and it's not just in the car, right? Like Tesla uh, collects this information and has it in their own on their own servers. So we saw from that uh, that case from the Netherlands, they were able to extract it uh, from the car, but we also know that Tesla has this, and and they can be compelled to provide it via a production order. But still, like to get that information out of the car, uh, the police have to still believe and have reasonable grounds that an offense had been committed, and then they have to go get judicial preauthorization to look at it. My concern is that people think that they you know get in an accident and then they think, oh my goodness, my car's got everything. Uh, recorded in there, I better start deleting everything using my phone or the app uh, that's in my car. And and that's where, you know, you can take a situation from from bad to much worse. Oh, okay, because that is what destroying evidence. Well, yeah, I mean, it's obstruction of justice. And even if you're like, you know, if your your dad thinks he's doing you a favor because you're driving uh, dad's Tesla and and uh, he goes and deletes the evidence. He could be the one who ends up in trouble as well, uh, an accessory to an offense, uh, you know, obstruction of justice. So it's, okay. uh, it's a real, you know, developing area of the law. There's no doubt about it. And it's developing with the technology, as we, you know, sort of alluded to, I guess, a few weeks ago, not knowing this case was coming up. Yeah. Hey, Paul, while I have you here, first day back to school, Let's talk a little bit about school zone infractions now. Police saying they're stepping up enforcement around schools. What are the potential penalties there, let's say, for speeding in a school zone? Yeah, it's about a $200 fine the first time out. It's three demerits on your license. The The real problem with those school zone tickets is they look like, you look like the worst person in the world, right, uh, when you oh. get a speeding in a school zone because it goes on your driving record and the superintendent of motor vehicles looks at it and you may have to disclose it to your employer. You might have to disclose it in a family law dispute. Um, and, uh, you know, who speeds in a school zone, right, except people who are are <laughs> completely uh, show no uh, no care for the rest of society. I mean, they, they, you're putting children at risk. So it's, it's one of the reasons, it's one of those tickets that you just don't want to get um, and uh, although it's only three demerits and, and not that much money, uh, it's humiliating, right? One of the other complaints, and we talked about this earlier on the show today as well, that when it comes to back to school and it's so busy at drop-off time in the morning and pick-up time when school is over, that maybe a bigger hazard in a school zone is not necessarily the person speeding through a school zone. Of course, you should never do that. But parents who are dropping their kids off... You know, and maybe taking some risky moves in allowing their kid to jump off at the sidewalk or at the curb. And that becomes hazardous in itself, does it not? I'm often shocked by it. Uh, and I've been watching it now for years. You know, I've got uh, children who are uh, in uh, one in grade six, and, and I've been watching this for the entire time that I've dropped off and picked up my child. And Lots of times, of course, my, my children find their own way to school. But still, uh, running through the stop sign right in front of the school uh, oh. at 
often high speeds and then dropping off in areas that are clearly marked no stopping. And they're clearly marked no stopping for a reason. And that's because kids run around in those areas and that, you know, the cities have looked at it. Uh, they've examined around the schools. They've signed them for those reasons. Uh, and yet people do that. And really, in the end, uh, you know, what is it? It's selfishness. Like, it's just selfishness. All you have to do is follow the rules, maybe go another 100 meters down the road and your child walks back. Uh, but when you see this, that's the only thing that ever comes to mind is it's it's people being selfish and, and putting others at risk. Uh, and I'm surprised that, you know, we don't just plant a police officer in uniform in front of the school for the first week just standing there, you know, giving uh, giving dirty looks to people and uh, and pointing to them so they can be reminded about what the rules are. Uh, we all are supposed to know what the rules of the road are, but unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, get into their own world and persuade themselves that they don't apply to them. Okay, talking about back-to-school traffic outside of BC schools, be super careful in those school zones today. Police are stepping up enforcement. My guest is Paul Doroshenko. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Sharon on the open line. Hi, Sharon, go ahead. Hi, how are you, Mike? I'm, I'm good. This this relates to your thing of last week when you were talking about the new drivers and the expense of uh, insurance fees. And yes. the parents in uh, Siakam that drive their kids to school when they could all be walking. I know some of them are out of area, but I walk there. I stop them and say, you made a U-turn, and the sign says it right there. And they say, well, everybody else is doing it. I phone the police when I have license plate numbers and they say oh i'm sorry that doesn't match to the color of the car you say you have to take a picture well i'm not going to stand and take a picture and okay so this is what are these like so these are what parents dropping their kids off for school in the morning and then they and they do teenagers off yeah and then they pull an illegal yui yeah today is the first day and because it's the first day of school i wouldn't have been out but i didn't realize it was I had a dentist appointment, and there was, for the first time, there was a police officer there at the okay. school, and you say that they're doing it today, but they just they just don't care. Yeah, they, they, please, thank the you one, for the call. Please do. Sharon, thank you for the call. Police are stepping up enforcement right now. Okay, Paul, what do you think about that? Like, if you see someone, like, do an illegal U-turn, can you call it in? Yeah, absolutely. You can, I mean, the best thing is to take a photograph because then you get the license plate and you've got all the information and the timestamp is on your photograph. And you can call them in, although I would say it's frustrating. Uh, you know, myself, I have called them in and I've got uh, some police officers who are regular in traffic enforcement. I've got their cell phone numbers, so it makes it, makes it easier for me. Uh, but, um, the uh, you know, it's, it's antisocial behavior, right? It's it's a terrible thing when you think that they're they're doing that right in front of their kids. They're basically teaching their children to be uh, uh, to be selfish as well. Uh, it's uh, it's a frustrating thing, but yeah, you can certainly call it in. Star ninety eight ninety eight is the number to call toll free on your cell. Ryan on the North Shore. Hi, Ryan. Go ahead. Yeah. Hey, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to share um, a bit of a program we've organized at my kids' school, which is Pauline Johnson. Uh, We've uh, we've got like a parent advisor. Well, every school has a pack, uh, but yeah. as part of the pack, we've we've organized a, a group of parents. We do it three times a year. We're about to kick it off. It'll be the second week and third week of school this year. Um, but we have parents out there with high vis vests, and we'll have the the traffic control police. You know, a couple of days with us as well. But but we sort of like police ourselves, and 
And it's amazing what happens when people know because we, we communicate to the whole community, the school community, that we're going to be out there. We ask for volunteers. And it's amazing what happens when people are watched by their peers. Uh, just, mm. it's, so, it's so calm. It flows so nicely on the days we're there. And then we remind people that, hey, just because we're not wearing our busy vests out there, we're still the same parents walking around. So let's all follow the rules. And so we'll do that three times a year, once at the beginning of the year, once after Christmas, and once after the spring break. And it's been pretty effective. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's pretty effective. Well, you know what? I think that sounds like a great idea. Do you have an official crossing guard at the school? Not on a not on a daily basis, but yeah. but this this group serves as that uh, on, uh, when we do it, obviously. Yeah. And is the school going along with that? The school doesn't have any problem with you doing that. Oh no, we're totally in lockstep with the school. The principal's yeah. out there with us. She loves it. We're 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 working very closely with the administrators to to pull it all together. So lots of support for it. Okay, Ryan, thank you for calling in with that. Okay, interesting idea, Paul. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, the one thing that it tells you is that uh, people will break the rules if they think they can get away with it, and if they think they they are being scrutinized or there's a possibility that they're going to be consequences, then they will change their behavior. Yeah. And the other caller, the caller touch, uh, earlier caller touched on auto insurance premiums for young drivers being excessive. Do you think that is the case? Like, do you think young drivers get a raw deal? Uh, you know, I, I I think in many respects, young drivers get a raw deal these days, and it's uh, I, I think a lot of people would have different opinions about it. But I look at the amount that they pay and the uh, and what they face if they get even one ticket, uh, and it just feels like too short of a leash and and too much money. Even though young drivers are the highest risk profile drivers, correct? Uh, well, yeah, but there's lots of very responsible young drivers. Uh, you know, I've known many of them over the course of my life. And, and after you've accumulated a couple of tickets, okay, uh, have a couple of accidents, okay. But you, you're just lumping them in on the basis of their mostly their age. Um, and it's true that, you know, as we mature, we become better drivers. And it's not a, a bad thing to know that. You know, this is a huge risk that your insurance is going to go up if you drive badly. But if you feel like you're, you're, you know, you're just being discriminated against on the basis of your age from the start, it's not going to encourage you to feel good about you know, mm. the, uh, society or, or how you're being treated by your insurance company. Paul, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.